In this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott, I had the pleasure of speaking with a highly esteemed uh, professor of economics and labor economist, uh, Daniel Hammermish. Dan has spent his career at uh, many institutions, uh, notably uh, Michigan State University and Princeton University, as well as more recently, University of Texas, Austin. And I'm sure I'm leaving some people out. He's a professor emeritus now and is retired. He hasn't retired, but he has left Texas and now lives in Manhattan. Dan has done a lot of very interesting applied work, um, both kind of applying economic theory to understanding a broad range of human behavior that ordinarily you don't really think of as about economics, like sleep, uh, time use, and uh, beauty, as well as suicide. Um, but he's also an empiricist. And so in this talk, we we just talked about his life as an economist growing up in Chicago, going to college at the University of Chicago, uh, where he studied, had a really profound experience studying with the, the famous, to me anyway, the famous labor economist H. Greg Lewis. You're going to learn that many people don't know who H. Greg Lewis is. Uh, H. Greg Lewis was Gary Becker's advisor. And it's just been, as you listen to the podcast, you'll the interview, you'll it'll just be sort of a journey down the history of of the late 20th century, uh, who's who in uh, microeconomics and labor economics in general. Uh, Dan is an inspiring person, a real servant to the profession and uh, to many students, and uh, just a real joy to talk to. And I hope that you enjoy this uh, interview as much as I did. My name is Scott Cunningham, and this is The Mixtape. Well, it is a, it's a pleasure and an honor to get to have uh, one of my favorite uh, economists in the profession I've looked up to for a long time, Dr. Uh, Daniel Hammermish. Thank you, Dan, for being on the podcast. Scott, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, for the sake of the listener, I know I said your name, but could you tell us your name um, and uh, any kind of title and uh, where, where you are these days? Sure. I'm Daniel Hammermesh, and I'm currently Sue Killam Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin, also Professor Emeritus at Royal Holloway University of London. Mm. Uh, currently, I'm resident in Manhattan, New York, on West 57th Street, and I have an office downtown at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Manhattan, and I've been associated with the NBER since 1980. I'm also currently uh, editor of the World of Labor, which is run by the IZA and Bonn. Mm, that's okay. so, uh, that's a lot. Uh, well, before we get into your career, I was wanting to talk a little bit about just your, you know, when you were uh, younger. Can, can you tell me where you grew up? Sure. I consider myself as having grown up in the western suburbs of Chicago, in oh. particular Villa Park, which is a place nobody's ever heard of. It was a cool place when I was there as a senior in high school in 1960, with the year of the census. The median family income was $3 different from the national median. This mm. was the most homogeneous community you can imagine. There mm. was one black in my high school class one Asian out of 400 people, and one Jewish kid. That was me. <laughs> All German Protestants, German Catholics, and miscellaneous other. Mm. What was it like growing up? So was that the suburbs of Chicago, or was it different? What, what, was it, what was it like? It was suburban Chicago. It's about 20 miles west of the loop. I still say Chicago like a real native, which is how one says it. It's awe, not ah, by the way. Uh, <laughs> It was a very good school. We didn't have a lot of the advantages of some of the very fancy schools in the northern suburbs that you've heard of, New Trier, Evanston. Mm. Yeah. But the teachers were quite, quite good. And there was a lot of tracking from which I benefited. Mm. I was a total nerd. I mean, the entire time. On the other hand, by the time you're a junior or senior in high school, it's good to be a nerd, even in those mm. days. I mean, you get good teachers and there's some respect given to you for that. Mm. and uh i was quite happy there a lot of friends i'm going to a high school reunion in a couple of weeks looking forward to seeing those friends again so yeah yeah we did pretty well i had very good teachers i was just very fortunate the english teachers especially i've mean, got an awful lot out of them yeah yeah what what did your mom and dad do for a living 
My dad was at that time when I was in high school, he was uh, division director and then deputy director of Argonne National Laboratory. Oh. He then moved to become chairman of the physics department of the University of Minnesota after I graduated college, actually. My mom taught high school for a few years. Then when they moved to Minneapolis, she became a junior college English instructor. What kind of scientist was your dad? A th- mathematical physicist. A mathematical it's physicist. No experiments. He never saw a laboratory. He stood around, sat around scribbling on yellow pads of paper. Oh, wow. And I think his success in the profession... Was his profession was about the same as mine. I view us as quite equal in that regard. What do you mean? In terms of his recognition in his profession of physics, about the same as my recognition in economics. Mm. We differed in a lot of other ways. He was a superb administrator mm. because he didn't care about what people thought of him very much. He mm. did what he thought was the right thing. And I was department chairman for four years. And I just wasn't at Michigan State. I just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. yeah. Because I was too worried what people would think about what I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, well, so what kind of vacations would you and your family do as a kid? What's one that really that you kind of think about that really stands out? Not really a vacation, but in 1958, 59, my dad had a sabbatical. And he wanted this sort of amusing story. He wanted to work with a very famous Nobel Prize winner, whose name you might have heard of, Wolfgang Pauli, P-A-U-L-I, mm. was at the uh, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. So we all decamped to Zurich for a year. Unfortunately for Daddy, Pauli died two months after we got there. Oh. Uh, so on the other hand, Dad spent the whole year writing a book for which he's probably most well-known today. Oh, and wow. I had a very difficult year because they enrolled me in the German speaking high school. Oh gosh. And uh, I had had two years of high school German. So I was thrown into this and they were very, very xenophobic at that point and very insular. Mm. On the other hand, I learned German real well. Mm. So, mm. still, I still I just used it yesterday uh, at the subway stop near us coming out. Some German family was totally lost. I heard them talking and I told them exactly how to go to where they wanted to go to in the subway. So do, do you speak it very, do you speak it very often? Uh, since I'm involved in IZA, I don't get to speak it, but I'll occasionally write to the people there in German just for fun. I mean, it's oh. this still deteriorates. I yeah. consider myself fluent. That means it flows, right? That's what fluent means, but not mm-hmm. perfect. Got it. Got it. Oh, wow. Wow. So what were you interested in math and physics in high school? I, not, <laughs> <laughs> I have not taken a science course since I was forced by the University of Requirements at Chicago to take a quarter of some silly biology class. <laughs> I specifically avoided the hard sciences. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, my school was quite ordinary. I did not go beyond, they didn't have calculus in high school. So Mm. in some sense, I viewed myself as being somewhat retarded mathematically. Mm. On the other hand, I have always loved numbers. When I was four years old, my grandma, may she rest in peace, taught me how to play casino, Mm. which is a game that involves a lot of addition. So I learned to add and subtract really quickly. Mm. And then when I was 14... I decided I was interested in finding out the frequency of names in the local telephone directory. Mm. So I browbeat my younger sister, she's two and a half years younger, to doing a tally. We managed to make it through half of the phone book of Villa Park, Illinois, tallying the names of first names of men in the phone book. Oh, wow. Really? I'll do that? Yeah, it's a totally stupid thing to do, but I just love numbers. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love numbers. And that was an illustration of it. And basically yeah. that's statistics, right? I mean, I've been right. interested in stats much more than math all my life. Right. There's math and then there's there's counting. And I guess like, yeah, right. One, one's the statistics of measurement and things like that is, is he, that is a little different. It's a lot uh, different. Well, so you end up going to the University of Chicago for college. Was that sort of predestined? You always wanted to go there or <laughs> no. something happened? No, it had one virtue because my dad was at Argonne Lab. I got half tuition. So the tuition that we had to pay was $1,000 a year. Okay. Was that, a, was that an expensive school back then? Would that have been really expensive? 
well, it would have been 2,000 instead of one, but by that's about set. The 2,000 is 14 in today's dollars, right? Yeah. So uh, that's still real cheap back then. And a thousand was a good deal. It was not my first choice. I applied to Harvard, which I wanted to go to, Chicago and Oberlin. Got into Chicago and Oberlin, was rejected at Harvard. Indeed, I've been rejected at Harvard three times in my life, which I like... <laughs> I'm rather proud of, in fact. <laughs> okay. So you go to University of Chicago. So what, what, what do you remember... What are some of your uh, first experiences that are really noteworthy about being at the university? So this would have been what, like the 19th, what, what year would this have been? I started in 61. 61. What were some of your first initial impressions about Chicago when you were there? Well, <laughs> I, they didn't have, they didn't even have an introductory economics course. Oh, I decided really? right from the start, in those days they did, and now they do. I decided from the start that I wanted to major in economics. So I enrolled in what was basically intermediate micro. Uh, wow. And the book. They didn't have a principles of micro. They didn't, they see, so they just were like, went straight to no, inter, to price no, theory or whatever. No, no, right. Indeed, the book was George Stiegler's A Theory of Price, third yeah. edition, which, uh, the professor who was brand new also, who I remained very friendly with, Belton Fleischer, who retired from Ohio State about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. assigned the first hundred pages of Stiegler's book for us to read the first week. Mm. Uh, for a guy who wasn't quite 18 years old yet, this was quite an experience. I was wow. completely naive, okay? Uh, it said you had to be a sophomore to get into that, a second year student to get into that class or have the approval of the department chairman. So the first week I was there, I figured, well, I have to go to the department office. And I insisted on seeing the department chairman. His secretary, uh, whom I got to know very well later on, uh, said, no problem at all. You don't need to see him. It said, approval of the chairman means I can do it for you. So I got approved to take intermediate micro as a 17-year-old. Yeah. So the, just the curriculum was different back then. There was no like... There was no first step. It just went, is that, was that a common thing throughout the whole country? Just like it went I, from intermediate? I don't, I don't know. I mean, there were very few economics classes. Look, my time mm. there, I took this three quarter sequence in intermediate, intermediate micro, intermediate macro, and then God help us money and banking, mm. uh, which never came back to. Uh, let's see. I took that. And then start of my in my middle of my second year, there was a course in labor economics. Wait, so did you take was that price theory class with Stigler? No, no, it was with this man named Belton Fleischer. It was with that guy. Oh, that was the guy. Got it. Okay. No, in second year, therefore, I qualified to take advanced classes, of which there are only four or five possible anyway. Really? And, yeah, it was a very short curriculum. Look, was, this is a graduate school, Chicago. Oh, one. got it. There were 400 people in my class, and I think there were a grand total, this is amazing, seven econ majors out of the 400. Oh, wow. It was just not a popular major then, especially uh -huh. at Chicago. Anyway, it, so- How big was the department? How many faculty was it? I have no idea. A but it had all the big people, right? Friedman was there, and, and Stigler, and Frank was Knight. Was Frank Knight and director? He was retired. Frank Knight would walk around and then eat, eat lunch in my dormitories. I would see him. I think I spoke to him once. Friedman, I took for the graduate price theory class my third year. Oh. Stigler was in the business school, so I never saw him. I saw him, but I, he didn't teach classes. And mm. Friedman just taught this graduate price theory class using the book that people all know, the provisional text, which people still may have. Well, so what was important about that experience for you? I mean, I could talk about this all day, but what, what most, really left an impression on you? The most important thing was that I took my second year course in labor economics by H. Greg Lewis. Oh, you did not. A really? Yes. Wow. Undergraduate class. And he used a textbook by a man named Melvin Reeder, R-E-D-E-R, -E uh -huh. which is somewhat modern, but Greg taught a modern, by today's standards, labor economics class. Huh. And... Uh, See, summer of after, right after my second year, Belton Fleischer, the man who taught me intro, employed me as an RA. Within a few weeks, or maybe just a quarter, I can't remember, Greg Lewis wanted me to be his RA. Mm. So I started working for Greg Lewis as an RA. 
No, it would have been right away at the start of fall quarter in 1963, because, and this has been one of the most memorable experiences of my life, on November 22nd, 1963, if you know what that means. No, is this like John F. Kennedy or something? I don't know. Yeah, that's the Kennedy assassination. Okay. 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 I, at lunchtime, 12 o'clock central time, went into the library uh, and spent four hours uh, calculating logarithms from raw numbers in the minerals yearbook for Greg Lewis for information on coal prices and coal wages. Okay. Uh, I got out of there at 4.15. I had an interview with a guy I was interested in talking to about my senior thesis, which I was uh, thinking about. And I went over to his office. He wouldn't talk to me. So I can't talk to you now. And I walked back. Because, because John F. Kennedy had died. Yes. Yes. Uh, I didn't know about it. Yeah. Finally, I walked by a newsstand and saw the big headline screaming Kennedy killed. So I think I was the last person in the United States that day to find out about it. Maybe the last one in the Western world. Mm. Anyway, working for Greg Lewis, which I did for, well, for that, that whole academic year and then fall and winter quarter until I graduated winter 1965, was probably the most most formative experience in my professional career, wow. both because of his care he took and because he really believed in thinking about economics. None of this, let's evaluate something and find an experiment. People didn't do that, he thought. So uh, that was important. What does that mean? What do, you, what do you mean he thought? What, what, what are you describing? He asked, how does thinking about incentives and economic behavior inform what we observe? Hmm. If you look at the papers of mine you mentioned, okay, especially the uh, sleep paper, mm-hmm. economics, or the old paper on suicide, JPE 1974, mm-hmm. these are economics. They aren't what papers, they are why papers. And I still believe that economists have more to add by asking why and try to infer from that asking what we observe in the world than trying to simply say, for example, and I'm being nasty about this, what is the impact of a deworming experiment in a town in Kyrgyzstan, just to pick mm-hmm. one on randomly? Mm-hmm. I very much feel that way. I realize I am swimming against the tide on this these mm-hmm. days. But in the end, I think we should be doing things that we can uniquely do and leave a lot of other stuff to sociologists who are just as capable of running STATA or any other program as mm-hmm. we are. Okay, so this is like the you know this is like smelling up a wedding. Nobody wants to hear it, I don't think today. But I feel terribly <laughs> strongly about this. Well, so when you go into before you go to work for Dr. Lewis, how was your vision of economics different than that? I didn't have much of a vision. I was I got into the reason I was majoring in economics ab initio was that my senior year in high school, we had an honors social science class Mm. and the instructor assigned Robert Heilbronner, the worldly philosophers. Yeah. And I just thought this is something where it's useful for society. Yet it's also mathematically based and has some kind of structure. And I mm-hmm. thought that was for me. I've been interested in labor things for a while. I read an awful lot of stuff on history of unions, various crazy things that nobody reads anymore. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to have that book in high school, then to have Greg Lewis in class. And then fall term of my fourth year, uh, I think it was fall term of my fourth year. I took a course, maybe I took one. No, I took a course fall term from Albert Reese. Yeah, he was there. I actually have Albert Reese in my questions. I didn't realize we were going to talk about him at Chicago. So he, you take a class from Reese in Chicago? I sure did. What's he, ta- what's he teaching? He was teaching a labor economics class. He taught two of them, in fact. I, can't, I think I took the second one, my second term that he t- year. T- two undergraduate Labor? No, no, these are, these are, these oh, are graduate you are, classes. You were taking the graduate class. Oh, yeah. There were very few oh. undergrad classes. I think all I had, the only undergrad classes I had were the four, the three, the three intermediate classes. Yeah. Greg's labor class. Mm-hmm. Then I had Milton's price theory class. That was graduate. Al Reese's first labor class. I don't know if I took his second class or not. I don't know. And then I had a graduate econometrics class 
from a man named John Cragg, C-R-A-G-G, mm. who you probably never heard of. Mm-mm. He was assistant professor. He went and spent his career at uh, University of British Columbia. He was Canadian. Oh. And he's famous. If you look this up, <clears throat> the paper and it's uh, uh, called the double hurdle model of yeah. estimation. Okay, but what it is is it's a really neat thing. Uh, instead of Tobit, where you say, "Does something reach some limit? If it does, then it goes linearly." Okay, if not, it's limited. He and and the effect of some variable on whether you reach the limit or how far above it you are is the same direction. And he pointed out that's restrictive. And I can imagine something, and indeed I use this in a paper just nine years ago, where mm. some variable has an increased effect on the likelihood of something happening. But once it happened, it reduces the amount you do. And mm. he invented that technique. It's even available if you want to use it in Stata, the program that most economists use. Mm-hmm. Check it out. C-R-A-G-G-I-T. Crag it. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, so was Chicago at that time, uh, was its reputation in labor economics sort of like noteworthy the way that you might think of like some departments are kind of connected with certain fields and like nationally known for it, you know, Chicago back then would they have said in one breath, oh, this is this is a phenomenal place to study labor? Because you just named H. Craig Lewis and Albert Reese, and I'm just now wondering to myself, what was its reputation for labor? What was labor's reputation in general, too, as a field? It, it was reputation was quite low in the 50s until mm. people like Greg, who had some rather phenomenal students who I mentioned, I'll mention who I got to know, mm. uh, and his student, Gary Becker, who was then at Columbia, and mm-hmm. Jacob Mincer at Columbia. If anything else, those guys had more of a reputation for a place for labor. On the other hand, Chicago had some superb students. I remember I was very, very annoyed when Greg Lewis showed me the letter he wrote for me to recommend me for grad schools. And he said, I have six RAs. Hammermesh is the only undergraduate RA, and he's the second best one I have. okay and I was really ticked off until I found out that he viewed the best one as being his PhD student Sherwin Rosen oh yeah it's tough (laughs) and I knew Sherwin fairly well because we hung around together down in the basement of what is now business school punching calculators for Greg Lewis Uh I think I also knew you won't believe this but Bob Lucas macro Nobel prize winner wrote his PhD thesis basically in labor economics, I would define it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So I know these guys, there were a couple of other PhD students who I knew slightly. G.S. Madala, an econometrician who wound up at Florida, wrote a well-known textbook. Uh, Giora Hanoch, H-A-N-O-C-H, who's a professor at Hebrew University. These guys are all retired And a lot of them are dead, of course, but uh, the grad students were phenomenal. And by taking grad courses and working for Greg, that's how I learned economics. That's the education I got. But Mm. in terms of outside reputation, no, it was just being built up then. What was his production function as a teacher? Yeah, that made him, you know, really good. Because you mentioned it seemed like he kind of mentored even. So like, what, what is it that, what were the inputs that he did? He was tough as nails, basically. Mm. I mean, I wrote a paper about him. There was a book some guy was editing. I think it's finally come out on labor economics at Chicago. And I was asked to write a paper on Greg, which was an awful lot of work. Mm. And I wrote the paper. I even did a survey. I love doing surveys, asking all the people who are involved with the IZA, uh, what do you know about H. Greg Lewis? About half the people had never heard of him. This was a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. He didn't write very much. He wrote a couple of well-known books on measuring the impact of unions, uh, plus another wonderful paper yeah. on hours of work. And people are from, but most people don't know this. And in fact, my favorite story on the survey about Greg is one person wrote back, I think he was a sprinter who uh, was the fastest man in the world. 
Really? This was, this was from a guy who was in the, he meant Carl Lewis, the runner. <laughs> the guy who did this, okay. And the guy who wrote this, in fact, is a Nobel Prize winner so, in labor economics. So I guess Greg was not well known, let's say. Wow, really? Phenomenal teacher. No, he's not well known now. People haven't heard of him. But and he's much- well known among labor economists, right? No, these were labor economists. Half of them had never heard of him. Really? And that was I'm- true for people with PhDs after 1993. He's Becker's advisor, right? He was Becker's advisor. Yeah. Too. I I know about I teach things that I've I teach things that he's said. Um, I thought he was famous. I mean, so he how long did how long did he stay in Chicago? Did he he got got his Ph.D. there? He went away to work in the War Labor Board during World War Two, came back. And then let's see, in 1980, I think he went to Duke for the rest of his career. Mm. Chicago had mandatory retirement at an earlier age than Duke. Oh, oh, okay. He was there teaching for 35 plus years. Well, did you think about staying at Chicago to do your PhD? No, because I was advised by both Belton Fleischer, who wrote recommendations for me, and a man named Herbert Grubel, I'm sure you've never heard of, as an international economist, didn't get tenure there, went to Simon Fraser University, wound up briefly being a member of the Canadian Parliament for mm. some right-wing party. They all said, you should go somewhere else. Grubel had gone to Yale and said, why don't you apply there? And mm. so I applied there and got in, mm. which I'm not sure it was the best place I could have gone. Mm. On the other hand, it turned out to be very beneficial for a reason I hadn't thought of. Yale was not co-ed at the time. Fortunately, my first month there, I met my now wife, who's been my wife for 56 years. That's wonderful. Forgetting about anything else, it was a very good choice. Another thing you fall into. That sounds like a natural experiment, Dan. I thought that you don't like those. Uh, I don't think it's a natural experiment. It's sure <laughs> chance, man. That's all. Uh, Yale was I mean, Yale. I don't think I got out of, as much out of it professionally as I got out of my time in Chicago. Really? Uh, on the other hand, my PhD advisor, a man named Mark Lizerson, who I'm sure you've never heard of. Mm-mm. He was an associate professor with tenure, left. All my people on my committee left two years after I did. I mean, one might say they figured they couldn't do better, but that wasn't the reason. He was very thoughtful. He made me think about sort of larger things more. Mm. The second person on the committee was a man named Mark Nurlov, who you probably have heard of, Mm -hmm. who is an econometrician. He's floated around. He said more tenure jobs than anybody else in the economics business. But he was at Yale for four years, the exact same four years I was. Mm. was Very insistent on doing things econometrically properly. Mm. That probably of all the things I got out of Yale, other than meeting my wife, that was the most useful. I think that that experience with H. Greg Lewis kind of teaching you this like economics is an explanation of why people do things. Was that an H. Greg Lewis thing or was that a Chicago thing? Because that's what I, I associate with Becker and well, Chicago. Yes, but Becker was Lewis's student. He got I know. That's what I'm Greg. just wondering. That's why I was asking. And you that think that, that was no, something Lewis, just, Lewis talked that way and he, he felt that way. And he, he taught you kind of like he convinced you of the power of economics as an explanation. Right, because he gave in the class all the things that we do in a modern labor class, and huh. nobody else anywhere in the world, I don't think, was doing it at that time. Huh. Certainly not at Princeton, and I know who was teaching labor at Harvard, John Dunlop was at that time, mm. and the people at MIT, I'm sure you'd never heard of them doing labor in the 60s. So, so that's a different flavor of doing labor than would have been, because like I guess like What's the dominant way of doing it by the institutionalists or something like institutional labor? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Institutional labor. How uh, talking about unions, union history, Mm. trying to talk. I mean, the major books There's a book you've probably never Slichter, Healy and Livernash. Ever heard of that? Mm -mm. The impact of collective bargaining on management. Uh, 
the people of Chicago say, well, that's the initials for it, or ICBM, like it's a giant missile. <laughs> that was the joke in Chicago. <laughs> but that was the only place people did these things, Chicago. Oh, one, because of that's gray. a distinct, what do you think? Okay, so then I guess I'm just, because I so associate that with like all of economics, I'm just now wondering, you know, why is Lewis like that? Why did he get that way? I mean, he was a student of Henry Schultz, okay? S-C-H-U-L-T-Z, Henry, Mm -hmm. who was in Chicago. I view Henry Schultz as more an econometrician interested in measuring things and literally identifying demand curves, but quite frankly, that's what he did, Mm. which is not the same thing as thinking about the behavior and the theory behind the behavior of why things happen. So how did Greg get this? I don't know. I think it just sprang, I mean, like Athena from Jove's head. I mean, you do have like all throughout, I think you do see, uh, I guess in the mid 20th century, just the, the development, the, the, just the fuller development of core consumer theory, I guess. Right. Like, I mean, I just, you're, you're thinking more carefully about, you know, the solving of these utility maximization problems and, and thinking about demand curves and how people change with respect to relative prices, I guess is, it is there, but is it not there? Is it, that's not like the way everybody would have been taking it. People thought that way in theory classes and theorists thought that way. I've not seen any application in any of the applied areas that we know of. Take IO. I took an IO class in grad school they had to take something other than labor extra. And it was institutional. And right. Structure, conduct, performance, and development. I don't think they did anything like that. Whereas right. now we went through a period, I have a paper with Jeff Biddle, my modal co-author as a historian of thought on how things change in applied micro over time from being that kind of thing to by the late 70s, early 80s, being very, very theoretically based and insistent upon a theory and linking the empirical to theory, to now going back to being purely empirical and worrying right. about are we identifying things. Mm-hmm. But I think Chicago, I think Greg was the innovator on this. Wow, that's really, I was really interesting. I was ticked off for that reason that only half the people in my survey three years ago had ever heard of the man. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about him as Becker's advisor and you're you sort of so closely associate that as Becker's worldview and and two and that that might have something to do with him well so you end up leaving Yale uh and you become an assistant professor from 69 to 73 at Princeton what was that back then was was Al Reese was Al Reese there yeah he in fact hired me he had left Chicago probably in 66 okay and so I had Take a cute story. So I was in the job market, except that year there was no formal job market, the American Economic Association meetings, because they were supposed to be in December at Chicago. And because of the riots and Chicago police at the Democratic Convention in summer 68, the meetings, some of the meetings were moved to Evanston. So I gave a talk at the Econometric Society in Evanston, Chicago suburb. And there was a rump job market meeting in Philadelphia organized by Lawrence Klein, ah. which is where I went for interviews. So I wound up getting offers from Princeton, Stanford, Penn, UCLA, all four of them, none of which required, uh, the, the latter three didn't even require a trip out. Well, just here's your offer. Princeton, you signed it in the mail or you spoke on the phone or what? Yeah, over the phone and then yeah. the mail. And Princeton insisted you come down and talk about your thesis over lunch. That was the job trip. So the formalized like job market, it just it was just very different back then. There no, was no, 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 it was not different. It just happened that the people didn't fly you out very often. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Stanford, country, in yeah. fact, Stanford, in fact, I got the call from the guy there who's I think still alive, an economic historian, said, no. We'd like to make you an offer. I said, well, I really want to go to Princeton. Can we fly you out and let you see the place? No. <laughs> One of the dumber things I've ever done in life. The coolest thing of all, so I accepted the Princeton offer. Early February, I got a call from a guy who was the chairman of economics at State University of New York, Brockport. Huh. Okay. 
saying, we want to make you an offer. I said, well, you know, I've already taken a, a job at Princeton. He said, well, I guess we got into the bidding too late, which if you think about it, I find quite amusing. Hmm. I don't think uh, Brockport and Princeton are in the same bidding market. I'm <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I don't mean to be snooty about that. Anyway, I took the Princeton job. Yeah. It was not the happiest time of our lives, my wife and myself. I mean, first of all, in those days, and I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, assistant professors were peons, mm-hmm. uh, having, being somewhat below grad students in the pecking order, far mm-hmm. below undergrads. Uh, Remember talking, Al was the chairman who hired me, but shortly after I was there, or right when I got there, Richard Quant, whose name you may know. Yeah, I know that name. Q-U-A-N-D-T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick Quant. He's still alive. He's 93, still alive. Uh, he was the chairman. I, he became chairman again later on in the 80s. And I saw him and I asked him, Dick, what's it like being chairman now compared to when I, I was there? He said, oh, much worse now. When you were there, the, the assistant professors were totally cowed and docile. And today they're very demanding. And we were <laughs> utterly cowed and docile. There's no question about it. Yeah. Uh, the only good thing of my four years there was that I got a semester off. All assistant profs got a semester with full pay. So I took a sabbatical at the University of Essex. Hmm. Because there were two guys there, probably not heard of them, who I wanted to work with. Both of them had left by the time I got there, but I got one or two interesting papers out of it. Got to meet Tony Atkinson, who just started. Oh, really? Wow. It was actually very helpful, too. Another person, unfortunately, deceased. Well, so I'm not quite following. Princeton was a negative experience, but what, why? What exactly were you, what was your, what was, what were you feeling and stuff? What was happening? I was feeling left out because they had somebody who had been a grad student of theirs who they kept on as assistant professor. And he was, I don't mean to be bitching about this. He was very much the fair haired boy mm. were given to him. You probably heard the name Orly Ashenfelter. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of him. Yeah. And in his PhD, he was slow getting a degree, but he started as an assistant professor. Oh, so y'all ago. were contemporaries. Y'all were like, y'all both were assistant professors. Yeah, oh, absolutely. At the same time. There were a lot of good people who were there. I got David Bradford, who's a public affairs guy, who passed away, regrettably, fairly early. Very, very good guy to talk to. Wally Oates, Mm. public finance guy, Mm. there. There were other people. The one person who was there I was quite friendly with, I just saw several weeks ago at Yale, Ray Fair. He's yeah, a guy who's done some labor stuff. He was mm-hmm. there as a professor. He, he was an assistant professor at Princeton when you were there also. too? Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. He was started a year ahead of me and left the year after I left. He wasn't going to get tenure. He went to Yale instead. And he's done very, very well. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he's a quite good friend. It was delightful seeing him a few weeks ago when I lectured at Yale. Yeah, yeah. So, but professionally, in terms of developing the way I think and the things I do, uh, no. On the other hand, there was a lot going on. The guest. Let me mute myself for. All right, I'll pause it. Okay, thanks. Sorry, my wife. Okay, go back. All right, going back to to uh, my time at Princeton. Uh, just having things go on. So I'll give you a story. Probably the most well-known paper I wrote during that time there. Had a paper in the QJ in 1970. That was done when I was in grad school. Uh, I'm sure you've never read it. It happens its biggest claim to fame is the same issue as George Okerlof's Market for Lemons paper. Really? Huh. Yeah. August 1970, QJ. Check it out. Okay. okay. Anyway, anyway uh, my thesis advisor, Mark Nurlov, came through and he was raving how great Becker's work on home production families. Uh, and I said, you know, Mark, Mark Nurlov, you know, I, I suppose you're going to tell me next that this kind of theoretical basis could be applied to something as ridiculous as suicide. And he said, that's ridiculous, Dan. And I went back to the house, the apartment. I said, you know, that's not so ridiculous. Let me think about it. And for the only time in my life, I stayed up past 10 p.m. thinking about a problem. I mean, I worry about them, but I actually was thinking of scribbling on a paper. And that resulted in a paper well, an economic theory of suicide. It was in the JPE in 74. 
the cool story of that, and this illustrates how unusual Becker was. Uh, Gary came by, uh, would have been fall 72, and <laughs> he came by in fall 72, and he went, I went to lunch with him. I, I, I've known him. I've known him for a while. He said, uh, I hear you've written a paper on suicide, economics of suicide. Said, yeah. So let's talk about it. So for a half an hour, he grilled me about this paper over lunch, which is one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my professional career, because you may not know it. His first wife had committed suicide a couple of years before then. And to have this guy doing this was just totally unnerving. Yeah. The other story about that paper, which was probably the best paper, as I said, that I wrote at Princeton, was many, many years later, a very well-known economist came to Michigan State. I was still there. It would have been about 1990. Gave a lecture. I was away that day. And he mentioned the important paper on suicide by Gary Becker. (laughs) And... I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of the Matthew effect in science, where the person who's better known gets mentioned as the originator of the idea. This was the case. The guy had never done it. Right. He was better known. So he got the attribution. He got the attribution. Yeah. Yeah. One of my colleagues fortunately made the point, you know, that wasn't Gary Becker. That was our colleague, Dan Hammermesh, who did it. And when the guy wrote the paper up, my work was cited. Was Becker... What was the kinds of questions that you remember him asking? What was he What was he grilling you about? Was it just straight up micro kind of like technical things or what? It's too long. It's 50 years ago, almost to the day. I can't mm. remember. Okay. Okay. Uh, for the sake of the people that are listening that aren't familiar with that paper, what, what can you, what does economics have to do about suicide? The idea is very, very simple and straightforward. Economists, as you know, think they maximize lifetime utility function. In a simple way, we think utility is a function of income, and it's a, your lifetime utility is the present value of your discounted income over your remaining horizon. That suggests several things. One, if you're older, you should be more likely to commit suicide because mm-hmm. the utility is lower, lifetime utility is lower. Two, if your income is higher, you should be less likely because your lifetime utility as a function of income should be higher. And thirdly, and this is obvious, this is Durkheim, Mm -hmm. higher unemployment should increase the chance of committing suicide Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because your income is lower. All three of those at that time worked out beautifully in some aggregated data. We didn't have micro data then that Mm -hmm. I looked at. Mm -hmm. Very straight, very, very straightforward paper. And it's still cited about a substantial number of times by people doing that, which are mostly sociologists these days. Um, The theoretical model underneath it, what can you say about that? Is that something that a graduate student now would recognize or is it, is it different? Grad student, heck, I think any decent intermediate undergraduate should be able to recognize it. This is not a profound idea. It was just profound at the time. It was utility set it up, solving Lagrangians, solving for first order conditions, that kind of thing. Lagrangians, heck, no, just here's the utility function, U equals this integrated thing, differentiate that with respect to Y, income at each age, A, how long you have left, and then unemployment, the fraction of your income that you might get. Yeah. It's absolutely trivial by today's standards. Mm. On the other hand, there's more theory in that than the majority of applied papers published in the top journals today. Oh, I'll stipulate. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. What 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 makes you happy when you write a paper like that? What what is it? What it, what is it that makes you at the end of it go? That was a really enjoyable, meaningful experience for you. How would you describe that to someone who's never been an economist? <laughs> so, what's the utility of thinking of utility? Okay, yeah. Um, the answer is, I think that you get something that nobody would have thought before, and that wasn't obvious to you at the start. Take the Mm. suicide paper, which, as I said, I mean, I wrote this 50 years ago with a then grad student. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the poem Richard Corey by Edgar Lee Masters. 
So whenever Richard Corey went downtown, meet people on the pavement, looked at him, he was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. There's a song by somebody a few years later in the 70s on this. He went home and put a bullet through his head. So everybody mm -hmm. thinks that the rich were more likely to commit suicide than poor people, which struck me as being absolutely rubbish. Okay. So by thinking about it as an economist, A, the idea was not standard. B, it was also right economically. Okay. Yeah. And so that was the biggest thrill on that paper and a few others over my career too, like that. I mean, those are the biggest thrills of my life. But even today, doing a paper where you think of something slightly different and you get some new empirical work done, which we just did in the paper on the four day work week, I and my friend Jeff Biddle, it's still a kick. Mm. The yeah. novelty, the is it novelty or is it originality or is it discovery? What what exactly are you describing? I'm describing all three of them. I'm describing novelty, something nobody has done, mm -hmm. originality, which is almost the same as novelty, and mm -hmm. then the thrill of discovering something different, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just pretty cool. And, and you know, economics, and you feel like even putting aside empiricism, like economics as an as a that that way of thinking of an explanation of human behavior, it, it has, it has a lot of things that have yet to been discovered, or at least it has in your life. I like to think there's a lot of use still left in this. I wish the devil, it was used more by people who are really smart, unlike me in thinking about this mm -hmm. okay? and getting something out of data that requires us thinking about the why and thinking about using economic theory to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, I still think it's highly useful. I wish it were used more. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, th this is the thing about economics. I feel like people know what lawyers do for a living. You know, you could talk to a eighth, a seventh grader. They know what a lawyer does. They know what a doctor does. They probably know what a, computer programmer does or an accountant. And if you told them what an economist, they, if you put an economist, they don't have a clue what they do. They don't even, they don't even like, but even when, if you were to try to start explaining what they do, they still might not be able to understand it. Cause you're, even when you just described it just then this, that it, you're describing feelings and you're describing discovery and, and those are necessary, you know, that's, it's like if you've never experienced that, you might not even know how that could be so life transforming, you know? I'll give you a story about this. Both of my sons took one semester of college of economics in college. Uh -huh. The older son got the best grade out of 500 kids at Princeton and Info Macro, and that was it. Uh -huh. He did take some in business school. The younger son, after seven weeks, called me up and said, Dad, I'm dropping the course. He, I said, why? Well, I just took the midterm and I'm sure I failed it. And how can you spend your life doing this stuff? It's so boring. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he got an A on the midterm, damn it. I think he did this partly just to just twit me. And he goes, yes, you're quite right. People don't see the beauty of it. Yeah. And it's impossible to describe that. You know, I sit around. I'm not teaching probably anymore. I mean, uh -huh. I taught for 54 years every year. But... It's hard to describe what you do if you're not teaching. Most people think you're an academic, you teach, and that's it. Right. And for somebody at a really good school, that's probably a third of your life, would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably, a, I've always, they have these surveys about what you do with your time. I put, used to put down a third teaching, 50% uh, trying to do research. I say trying to, because I'm not successful all the time. Mm -hmm. And then 15% doing administrative things, service to the profession kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the profession. So, so I, I, you, you've been, you, your, your relationship with economics as a profession, you know, uh, mentorship and things like that, it seems kind of uh, distinctive. I was wondering just what your thoughts are. Uh, you know, you've written even advice for young people in the profession. What are what's your overall philosophy or your belief system about like what you, why you do that? Why is it you've been so, so, so involved in that way? Or how have you been involved in and why is that? 
Okay, let me, well, have I been involved? I wrote a paper in 1982 called Scholarship Citations and Salaries. It was the first paper to look at the salary determinants of salaries of economists. That's sort of navel-gazing. I call a lot of this navel-gazing. Mm. A few years later, one of my, one of the two pair of grad students at Michigan State came and showed me a letter from a paper they had submitted to a journal and they were just crushed. They said, why did they reject our paper? And I looked at the letter, I said, your paper wasn't rejected at all. And mm. that got me to write the paper I think you were referring to called The Young Person's Guide, A Young Economist's Guide to the Profession. Yeah. And that got me thinking about mentoring and advice. But why do that? I mean, the answer is it's fun. I mean, I, you know, you may think it's an altruistic motive, and I'm glad it has some positive effects for other people. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, you do it because it's fun to do it. The reason we do all of this stuff in the economics business, it's mm -hmm. fun to do the research. And I don't know, perhaps not for everybody, but for me, the teaching has always been fun. I'm not teaching this year and I miss it terribly. Mm -hmm. I'm giving papers at a few places. And then both of them, I said, can I teach a class on something which people think is insane? Yeah, but you love I it. Teaching. I like to teach. I think it's important. Yeah. I taught probably 20,000 plus students in the intro economics over my 50-year career mm. and to me that's important i mean you're yeah. selling a way of thinking so yeah. why the advice the profession why the stuff uh it's just fun that's all and it yeah. happens to be sort of useful i mean mentoring i've written as i may have mentioned before i don't think i did i've written close to 250 letters of promotion and tenure over the mm. year mm. now down to about three a year but i was doing 10 a year for quite a while wow. uh, the reason being people know that you'll do it and they think, yeah, let's get this sucker to write a letter. Right. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, yeah. but, but this is important. This is service. Yeah. Right. Right. This is Greece that makes the academic labor market function. Is that right? Okay. That's interesting. It's stepping back for a minute. This service provided is a mechanism in the functioning of the academic labor market? Absolutely. How is that? Can you tell me more about several, that? Several, that's easy. In terms of mentoring, which we now have very formal programs. On the other hand, I think the informal aspects are more important. Uh, without that, people just don't have a feeling for how to function in the profession. Mm. Where they get involved in things that trouble them. I'll give you one story on this without mentioning names. Some woman came to me and she was crying, saying she was at a meeting with a guy, a senior male economist, who propositioned her and said, we can write this paper if. Uh. And she was worried about this and she was terribly bothered. Yep. I told her to tell him just to go to hell, frankly. He had no business doing that. Yeah, he said, well, she th he threatened to make her life miserable. I said, mm. if he does anything, you have this over him, he'll be blackballed forever if he did that. This mm. was a case of quite informal mentoring, but I've done a number of things like that over the years. Mm. Said, you know, unless you were brought up in an academic family, which to a certain extent I was, my father had been a professor, well, the first five years of my life, then he went to this lab, you don't have a feel for what to do. Right. We don't teach this. We certainly didn't teach this kind of thing in grad school. Now I've right. been running around for the last 25 years giving a lecture called How Does the Economics Profession Work? Which yeah. Updating. Uh. And that kind of thing helps. Some PhD programs actually have courses on getting ahead. Yeah. Uh, I know Michigan, Hal Varian used to teach a very neat course for grad students. Uh. I don't know if they still do it at Michigan. Hal hasn't been there for a long time. Yeah. That's one reason. That's the main reason for doing this. In terms of writing letters, if you're a department chair and somebody's up for promotion, either promotion and tenure or promotion to full professor, you need the higher administrators need letters. And if people don't do that, uh, or only people who think their time isn't very valuable, which mine isn't, in fact, do it, you're not going to get an impressive list of people. Yeah. Yeah. Economists, by the way, okay, I was on a liberal arts college-wide promotion committee for three years. Economists write the nastiest letters possible. 
compared to any other field. Everybody else writes glowing letters. Economists think about it and try to be fair. I'll never forget one of the people up for promotion to full professor in the English department in our college. Uh, somebody had written a letter. She is the third best expert on Beowulf in the United States. And I asked the English chairman who was selling this, I said, are there more than two others? Which, I mean, it's the kind of letters people write in those fields, incredibly. Right. Whereas economists, I mean, you solicit six letters, at least one of them will say the person is good, but there are others who are better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so it's like, well, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about labor supply that's like uncompensated voluntary labor supply that it sounds like you do because it's fun. And it's weird that a it's weird that a labor market would be so dependent on needing to have a group of people that do stuff because it's fun. I mean, it's kind of interesting that you're saying all this. This is literally how I am also very similar in a lot of this. I do a lot of this kind of stuff too. And it's uh you're right, like it's great that's all true. I, I do it for a lot of just because it's so much fun and it, and it's fun to connect and help and and there's just a lot of things, but it's weird that it needs to be seated. The profession has to be seated with enough people that just get personal satisfaction out of doing something that's critically important. Let's, uh, let's be very careful. I mean, is it, does one do this because of feelings of altruism or does one do it because it's fun? I can't separate those. Two. Yeah, I totally. I mean, uh, I used to give blood. I've given about 130 pints in my life. I stopped now. Mm -hmm. uh, is that altruism in the sense you're helping others mm -hmm. or are you making yourself feel good? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right. I With concepts like utility, it's really hard to, it's almost not a very helpful. It's not a very helpful distinction. The notion of charity. I remember in my graduate price theory class from Friedman when I was an undergraduate, this was, this was spring of 64, right when LBJ had announced the war on poverty. And Friedman was very upset about this, not surprisingly, and said, if I want to give out charity, I'll give it myself. Okay. <laughs> and when he came down the aisle passing out the final exams, I raised my head and said, Mr. Friedman, are you interested in buying some charity for me? <laughs> he scowled. He did not like that one. <laughs> That's exactly what it was about, okay? It's one of my two famous Milton <laughs> stories, in fact. But he was not amused by my line, which I thought was devilishly clever. That's a, good. Yeah. For a 20-year-old undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, Dan, because you've got this paper. I don't know if a lot of people have read it. I, I remember it struck out to me. It's more recent, maybe the last 10 years on workaholism. Yeah, that paper with Joel Slemrod, who by Michigan, who is one of the most fun people I've ever worked with. Yeah. I don't know if you know Joel at all. I, I don't know him. No, I know him by reputation. He won the Ig Nobel Prize. Yeah, with Washtek. Yeah. With, with, with Wojciech Kopchuk. Okay. Yeah. And you know what the prize you get with the, with the Iggy? No. He had it in his office. When you're a little kid, you might have had tin cans connected by a wire and used as walkie-talkies. Ever seen that? Yeah. That's the Ig Nobel Prize. That's the prize award. Then you have to give a seven-second lecture about what you did. <laughs> seven seconds. Seven-second lecture at the annual <laughs> meeting of the Society for Irreproducible Results. This <laughs> award. And I'm very jealous. I would love to win that award. Oh, it sounds amazing. Right. It was because somebody people died to avoid taxes, right? Or something That's, like that. Yeah, dying to avoid taxes, which in fact is a great paper. <laughs> That's a great, I mean, it is just so amazing. Yeah, I can tell you. Well, but anyway, John, our paper, like, you know, what's interesting, Dan, is like, in a way, workaholism and voluntary provision of uh, altruism out of love and, and fun and that actually performs this gargantuan service of like policing and providing information and mentoring they kind of seem i don't really know why but they seem like they kind of go together 
I disagree with that. I think what you're saying about the work, about the uh, mentoring and doing things about how the profession works, which I've done a lot of, that I think does, is characterized as you say. The workaholism, the idea there being very simple, you develop a habit of work and you're working more than you would if you were to maximize at a point in time. The mm. problem with that is it spills over and makes life more miserable for those who are stuck with you. Yeah. I mean, my wife is constantly telling me, why don't you take it easy, Daniel? Yeah. And if I were to, we might have more, well, not now, we have a lot of time now, but we'd have had more time. If yeah. I were a supervisor who employed a secretary, an executive secretary, I'm making her or him work more than he or she otherwise would. Right, right. Okay. And you might say, well, you know, let them go somewhere else. But they build up a relationship with you. They've They're got all this firm specific capital. Specific capital. Yeah. That's the line we use in that paper. So right. I don't think these things are alike at all. One is beneficial. Mm. But I wonder if they come. Yeah, no. So that this idea that one's benefit, one's socially productive and one isn't, that's true. But I wonder if it's not coming from the same malleable personality traits. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. that's what I want. Well, it's like, I wonder if those people aren't the same people. Well, I don't know. Well, see, my wife, I remember. Because I'm definitely boy, a workaholic. No, no, right? Former colleague referred to me as an anorexic workaholic. Uh-huh. Which I like that line. Yeah. And certainly I've done a lot with, out of whatever reason to study and help the profession. So whether my example of one in the mm -hmm. correlation to talk about applies across the board. I don't just, I don't know, but surely yeah. it applies to this sample of one. Mm, yes. Mm, mm. Last question. You've written some books. I was curious about why you decided to start writing books and what was your favorite of all the books that you wrote? So I've written three, what I consider major books. Okay. The first was something called labor demand, the 1993 Princeton press. Mm -hmm. I started working on labor demand issues really as part of my PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. which thesis goes absolutely unread. It was published in something called the Yale Economic Essays, which went defunct shortly after I published there. <laughs> so it's cause and effect, but it might be. Anyway, yeah. and I worked on that off and on uh, over the years, various demand issues, and I decided there was a need for that. And so I call that my major, my magnum opus. It was published mm -hmm. when I was 50. So that was for that. Published a book called Beauty Pays. Which, How well did labor demand do? Was that like a it's on selling? Is that I have it? Uh, but we didn't, I I didn't we didn't use it in grad school. My, my professor Ron Warren, he he told me to get it. And I remember it's purple. I have it on the yeah, shelf Ron, right now. my student Ron Warren, you mean? Oh, he was your he was your student? Yes and no. Uh, he was working in Department of Labor the year I was there uh -huh. and taught a short course for various staff around the department. He was in BLS and uh -huh. he took a short course. So he was sort of my student at Georgia. Oh, wow. Oh, I have to anyway, say this. I so love Ron. Yeah, he's a good guy. Anyway, so the Labor Demand book has probably sold 3,000 copies over the years, which is actually mm -hmm. remarkably good for a book that very specialized. Mm -hmm. The second book I wrote it was Beauty Pays, published in 2011. Mm -hmm. And that was written because my wife said, Daniel, you've been publishing these papers on beauty, and they seem to be getting placed at lower and lower quality outlets. Why don't you write a book about it? Mm. And so that book was her idea. It's basically the literature and issues in beauty and markets. Mm. That was book number two. There are other books along. How well did that book do? Did That's about 12,000 copies. In, 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 in total, it's sold 12,000. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It is good. On the other hand, when I wrote it, I thought, I think it'd be great to publish, to sell 1% of the copies that Freakonomics has sold. Yes. Okay, which has sold 5 million worldwide. So I made not 1%, but 0.25% of Freakonomics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the way to make yourself feel a little bit humble. Yeah. The third, yeah. The third book I wrote, the last book I wrote or will ever write is called Spending Time, Oxford University Press 2019. Mm. Really recent, mainly because I've been working on issues of time since I published a paper in 1990. I've done an awful lot on how people spend time. Yeah. And I wanted to write it up in a semi-popular way. 
getting mm-hmm. the literature there, stressing the issues and so on and so forth. So the reasons in all the cases are to make it useful. You get no points as a scholar in economics for writing books, none yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. And so these are not, I view these as labors of love. Labors of love. It's connected to the stuff we're talking about, though. It is indeed. It's the same yeah. kind of On the other hand, I mean, the beauty book was fun. The title, Beauty yeah. Page. My then 90-year-old mother gave me that title, mm. and I dedicated it to my wife. And if you look at the preface, uh, the preface finishes up with the Keats's poem, She Walks in Beauty Like the Night, mm. if you know the poem. So it's, that poem. My wife, it's very much my wife's doing that book. Mm. Well, it is so nice to talk to you. It's all, I mean, it's just really wonderful to get to talk i'm so happy to hear that you're happy up in manhattan do you ever get to see do you happen to know michael grossman yeah now michael did me a tremendous favor when he found out i was here full time he offered me an office at the nber downtown oh wow i go there a couple of times a week and he's there we cross paths maybe once every other week he's so nice he's a good guy he really really he's a you know he's a he's a person that's been a uh consummate mentor you know too for his whole career it's it's great well i really um uh it's good to good to talk to you okay pleasure indeed thanks for having me okay